0: Take a big, deep breath and realize that deep, profound truth is going to be encountered in these pages. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Michael Gormley from Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. I am not joined by Dave Van Vickel. In fact, I'm not even joined by me. Today, we are going to listen to a talk that I recently gave to my RCIA class, and I want to show you how I very practically weave together the elements of all the stuff that we're talking about. So for instance, you don't know Jesus if you don't know Israel. We talk about the history of Israel. We talk about Maccabees and all of this stuff, all within the context of explaining who Jesus is and what the Trinity is. I also weave together my personal testimony in the form of a personal funny anecdote, and I tie it into proclaiming the basic gospel message in order to lead people into repentance and into the marvelous light of God's love for them in Christ Jesus. So buckle up, stay tuned. Ascent Press is gonna throw in a commercial magically somewhere in the midst of my tidal wave of words. Special thanks to all of them for putting up with our crazy schedule. Hopefully me and Dave can have some normalcy soon. I'm actually gonna try to buy a plane ticket and fly to Pittsburgh so we can record like five episodes in person. Whatever, here we go. We tell this story. I love this story. It's a fun story. A buddy of mine that I knew only on the internet, he's a deacon up in Chicago. He's a part of this organization that I follow. He was coming to give a presentation down at our archdiocese, which is kind of near downtown. And so I was going to go, listen, the title of the talk was Bill, making disciples of Jesus Christ in a Catholic parish. Super excited. Deacon Keith, going to be awesome. So uh, he reaches out to me and says, hey, I'm going to be down there. I'm coming in like late the night before they got a ride for me. But In the morning, if you come down at, like, 7, my talk's not till 9.30. If you come down at 7, maybe we could have, like, breakfast together or something like that. And I was like, oh, that'd be cool. That'd be awesome. So I send him a a message, and I'm like, I'm going to leave super early because traffic in Houston is nuts. It was a weekday. So I get in my car at 6 o'clock. Don't realize that if you leave a little bit early, there's no traffic at all. And then, like, 15 minutes later, it's, like, standstill. So I fly down. I'm downtown at, at 6.30. And I'm like, well, and I pull out my phone to text him. He goes, oh, man, they just called me. I didn't know this. They were planning on taking me out to breakfast. You know, they're the host. I go, say, you know, say no more, say no more. It's fine. It doesn't hurt my feelings that much. Like you go out, you have, I said, I know there's a McDonald's about two minutes away on the other side. So I'll just go hang out there. I got a book I brought. I'll read. I'll eat some egg McMuffins like a gentleman. And you just call me when you're done and I'll come meet up with you. So I sit down. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I have, even though I'm dressed like a Mormon missionary, I've never had a Mormon missionary or Jehovah's Witness come to my door, except once. And they have extremely anti-Catholic pamphlets, like making fun of the Pope on it. And they're like, we would like to talk to you about it. And I go, oh, my kids are crying. I was like, I'm in the middle of feeding them lunch. Can you please come back tomorrow? Please, please. And they didn't. They were like, what the heck? So they leave. I've never had them in my house. I've never, I've always had to live vicariously through my friends and their experiences with people knocking out their door. I was always sad. Uh, so I'm at McDonald's, right? I'm sitting down and just get my two hash browns out, ready to dunk them in some delicious over-sugared ketchup. And then I hear a voice, sounds like the guy just got off the Mississippi River boat. And he goes, excuse me, sir, can I tell you how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And I just went, I wish you would. I never touched my food for the next two and a half hours. He sits down and we, I literally just push my train. I'm like, it's happening. So he starts off. He doesn't introduce himself, doesn't tell me his name, pulls out the King James version of the Bible, sets it on the table and we're off to the races. And he starts flipping through and he goes, give me a favor. And he has a stack of brochures. And I'm like, glance, I'm like trying to figure out who this guy is, where he's from, with his background, with his denomination. And so we start talking, and he goes, Can You do me a favor, will you read this passage from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians? And I was like, sure. And it says, uh, for Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He goes, Oh, isn't that interesting? Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, not the creator. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? And I was like, Are you going to give me a mint julep? I love this guy's voice, right? Right off the riverboat, right? So I go, I, So I look at him, I go, Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm about to say something. And then he starts flipping to the next, uh, you know, epistle or letter or whatever. And he's like, Read this. And I'm like, What is this guy trying to get at? What is he trying to get at? And uh, so I'm going through. And I realized he's attacking the divinity of Jesus. And so as he's flipping through the next Bible, to get me the next Bible passage, he's looking down, the second he looks down, I grab his pamphlets and I look at the bottom, jw.org, and I'm like, he's a Jehovah's Witness. So I was like, what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Oh, they believe that Jesus is like St. Michael the Archangel. And then he becomes Jesus, and then he snaps back to being St. Michael, back and forth, back and forth. Okay, that's what he believes. He doesn't believe in the Trinity, which is a foundational Christian doctrine about who God is. So I was like, oh, this is going to be exciting. Now I remember, and I, and I look at him, and so he reads the next verse, and uh, you know, it was something along the lines of like firstborn of the dead or firstborn of creation again. And I said, actually, I said, the reason why it calls him that is because Jesus Christ, being the son of God, entered into creation because we, finite creatures, finite sons and daughters, rebelled against him. Adam and Eve, Noah, all the great figures of our covenant representative with God, they're all epic failures. And so God himself became man, entered into the covenant, so as to perfectly fulfill the covenant. And rather than having us screw up, Jesus does it perfectly, but through his death and resurrection... Jesus, in his humanity, becomes glorified, so he becomes, as Ephesians chapter one says, the head of all creation. So now, in his human nature, which has now been divinized and glorified, he's in charge. He is. We call it. I even said this. I was like Saint Irenaeus, an early church father, used the Latin word is recapitulation, which means to become the head of all things. Right? The word cap, where we get baseball cap. Capitum means head. And he looked at me, and he was like, what? I go, here, here, let me show you. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter one. Right, right. So I look at this guy. Now I have the Bible. This is my favorite. This is like, this is like my favorite part of my story because this is where my full arrogance comes out, right? This is me. It's just a total jerk. Is because I didn't even turn his Bible around. I just flipped through for him to John chapter one, upside down. I said, okay, now let's read this together. And I didn't even look at the Bible. I was like, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Okay. I said, let's just take that and break that down. In the beginning was the word and the word was with. So when you hear the word with, what does that imply? With means a distinction. Here's God, Here's the word. They're standing next to each other. They're with each other. They're not collapsed. And I said, but then look at the very next sentence or next uh, phrase, and the word was God. So we have this thing called the word. We have this time called in the beginning and we have this phrase that says he was with God and he was God. He was in the beginning with God. Uh, All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now that's a kind of a clunky phrase in English, but in the Greek, it's really emphasizing not a a quark was made without the word, right? And I said, who was the word? We go, well, that was Jesus, Jesus Christ. I was like, yeah, that's right. All right. And I said, if you drop down, right, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. All right? The Latin word incarnation, right, means to become flesh. Carne, right? Have you ever had chili con carne? What's inside the chili? Delicious sweet meat, right? Chili con carne is chili with flesh, right? So the incarnation, Asian, the action of, in, in, and carne, carnus, right? Meaning the action of taking flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only son, right? From the father. So the idea of what John's gospel, I said, and I'm looking at this guy. I said, okay, so in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And what is the Word doing? He's creating everything, right? You go, okay. I said, so if he's creating everything, and I'm writing this to a Hebrew audience, to a Jewish audience in the first century, now in the history of Judaism that you'll find in these charts, The history of Judaism has been plagued with one phrase. They wanted to be like all the other nations. So what do they do? They would adopt the pagan gods and goddesses and the ritual worships and all this stuff and the craziness of the Canaanites and the Philistines and all these people all around them. In fact, the Braveheart of the Bible, which is not in the NIV, but is a Catholic Bible called First Maccabees, is a story of a bunch of Levites, who is is the last kind of surviving tribe with the Judahites or the Jews, and they overthrew the tyranny after Alexander the Great and the Greeks conquered everything. It's their, It's the brave heart of the Bible. It's their overthrow of the foreign powers. And they maintained about 100 years of independence, right? It's a crazy story. It's an awesome story. It's a story of the origin of Hanukkah and all this stuff. So when you begin to look at, uh, at these things, right, and, and as time kind of unfolds, you realize that the problem with In the Old Testament, over and over again, is the sin of idolatry. They're constantly going after all these gods. So what does God say? Well, in the book of Deuteronomy at the end, which every U.S. president used to have to swear on, now they swear on a closed Bible, but they used to swear on an open Bible and it's open to Deuteronomy 28, which is known as the book of the curses. See, I'm talking fast because I have so little time left. It's already four Uh, (laughs) o'clock. So that is such a broken clock, but it's right twice a day. Uh, No, it's not because it's moving. Uh, So the idea of it, is they would swear on the book of the curses. The book of the curses are simply this. If you refuse to keep my laws and statutes, a little bit, you're gonna get a little punished. A lot of it, you're gonna get a lot of punished. And then the Israelites all respond, we will keep the covenant. And then Moses says, no, you won't. And when you wake up as strangers in a strange land, then you will call on me and I will hear your voice. Then you will come and seek me with your whole heart. And I will pursue you and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. That happened. The 10 northern tribes utterly destroyed in that thing. I think it's the black, um, black color coding, the divided kingdom, if I'm right. That's when all of Israel broke up into north and south. North was called the kingdom of Israel. South was called the kingdom of Judah. The 10 northern tribes gone when the Assyrians came down and destroyed them. They, they, they've never returned. So the promise of the Messiah is one day he would gather these people from the nations where they were scattered. So the Messiah is one who gathers them together. It's very fascinating. But the southern tribes, it was Levi, Judah, and Benjamin, but the largest one was called Judah. That's where the capital was in, so they became known as the Jews, right? They, because of their paganism, God ultimately punished them with the Babylonian captivity, Right. And so they get whisked off to Babylon and they're there for 70 years. And then they come back in three stages. That's the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They talk about rebuilding Jerusalem. Well, why am I bringing up all this stuff? Because by the time the Maccabees come around and all this stuff, Israel had realized the remnants of Israel realized our paganism, our adultery against God has gotten us punished. So then they flip the script. Not only did they not want to be like all the other nations, they began to actively despise the nations, cutting themselves off from the nations as far as possible in their vigorous pursuit of upholding monotheism, right? So then you find that you have a group called The Pharisees, the separated ones, they didn't just not party with you because you were a Roman. They didn't party with you because you partied with her, even though you might be a devout Jew. They separated themselves from everyone they deemed were unclean. And then they doubled down the rituals of like purity and purification laws and all the little things that we lump together with legalism and stuff like that in religion. They were hyper-focused, but they were focused on it for a reason. By their purity, they thought they would bring about the Messiah, Okay, God, we're gonna pursue you with everything. We're gonna pursue you with everything. And then a bunch of Pharisees broke off and said, you're not hardcore enough. And they became known as the Zealots. And the Zealots used physical violence against the Romans if they got too close to the Jewish religion. And to their fellow Jews, if they became too close to the Romans, they would carry around in their shirts daggers, and they would come out and they would stab people, right? And I told a little bit about this story, but that's what they would do. Then there was another group that splintered out even from them, and they said, you know what? The whole system's corrupt. And they were known as the Essenes, and there were tens of thousands in this party, and they left Jerusalem. They said, no, the whole temple, the party of the Sadducees who runs the temple, you're all corrupt, right? Forget the Democrats, forget the Republicans, it's a broken system, we're going to the desert right? We're going to build our utopia in the desert. And they did. And they built this massive series of communities. There was even a community in a quarter in Jerusalem, coincidentally enough, where Jesus celebrated the last supper. But they had these Essene communities who were total separatists, but they weren't going to use physical violence. They were going to use prayer and personal virtue in order to bring the Messiah. So at this point in time, the reason why I say all that 30 minute rambling, it's because these people were so fiercely monotheistic, belief in one God, that they would kill a Jew if a Jew started worshiping the Roman Roman gods. They would persecute him, they would cut him out, right? So that's why Jesus uh, constantly encountered tax collectors. What were they? Collaborators with a foreign power that then were rendered unclean, that they weren't even treated like human persons, even though now they're amassing tons of wealth and all this stuff. They were ostracized because they were giving Jewish money to foreign powers. They were cooperating with a pagan regime, right? You had all this. Now, the reason why this is so important, it's in the middle of a fiercely monotheistic sub-subculture that exists within a hugely polytheistic wider empire. And here, John, a Jewish disciple of Jesus, when he speaks to a Jewish audience, what does he say about Jesus? These words are powerful because he's equating and a man that walked this, you know, city of Jerusalem and Judea and, and uh, Galilee and all this stuff with God. All right, that's John's preface, as this is known as, is equating the human that we saw, that we touched, that we heard, that we, you know, listened to, that we yelled at, that we crucified, that ultimately this guy actually was God, is God, because he rose from the dead. Now that's epic to say that. So I'm looking at this guy back to McDonald's, right? Like a gentleman, back to McDonald's. I said to him. What does the phrase, in the beginning, sound like? What does that remind you of? And he said, uh, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, they're talking about all things being created. And what does that remind you of? Genesis? I said, Genesis. Let's go to Genesis. And I start flipping in his Bible. right, Not breaking eye contact so as to intimidate him. I'm just kidding. So we flip. Now, open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Open the page back to page numero uno. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and this life is the light of the world. Light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. So I said, what does in the beginning refer to? And he said, well, Genesis chapter 1. I said, right, Genesis chapter 1, the story of creation. I said, so imagine you're a Jewish author telling a group of fiercely monotheistic Jews about the very nature of who this Jesus was is. And you don't start off with what Matthew does. What does Matthew do? Matthew describes his human lineage through uh, after King David, right? So not only is he a Jew, but he's a Jew of the line of David through Joseph. He belongs to the house of David. That's what Matthew does. Luke, Luke writing for a Greek audience goes all the way back to Adam and all the genealogies from Adam to Abraham to David to then to Jesus, Showing him that, yes, he's a human like all of us, right? He belongs unto, he is the son of man, which is a title Jesus uses all the time. He has a full human nature, right? Mark skips all that, and then he's just like, nah, you guys can read the other guys. We're going right to the action. Start with John the Baptist, and then an adult Jesus. None of the infancy stuff, none of that. But what does John do? John, probably writing last, looks at what's already out there. The human lineage, all this stuff is up there, out there. So John says, it's time to start on the divine lineage. In the beginning was the word Right, so he takes us, that's why John is always depicted as an eagle, because he takes the reader to the loftiest heights of Christian witness, right? Of Christian understanding. So I said, open your Bible to Genesis. He opens it up. I said, How does God create? And so let's just read this together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. I said, okay, so that's the opening thing. That's why I put this in big brackets here up top. Genesis chapter one is not trying to give us a scientific account of how the world was created. It's not, you know why? Because modern science wasn't invented until 14 or uh, 400 years ago. So we gotta stop trying to pretend like this is the same thing as a scientific textbook. A scientific textbook wants to give you how. The Bible is trying to give you why. Those are qualitatively different answers. Why? Because science studies matter and energy right? The idea of theology is giving us the intention of a person. Why did you do that? Why did you do, how did you do that? Well, I took a car and I went really fast and I hit the other car. Why did you do that? Because I hate them, right? So that is the difference because why answers the question of intention and only free persons can have intentions. You don't look at an animal and say, why did you do this? I mean, you do, especially when they eat your favorite shoes. Not that that's ever happened to me. But you, you expect rational answers from rational animals, right? And animals ain't rational. So we look at Genesis is giving us the why. The why at the heart of it all. It's not, there's not a conflict between Genesis and science unless you have a very literalistic reading of Genesis, which the church says, you want to have that, Fine. All right, you do have to believe that God created everything out of nothing. You do have to believe that God created the special soul or did a special creation of the human soul. You do have to believe that at one point the human beings endowed with grace lost that grace through a free, willful act of disobedience. But if you want to hold that the earth is 6,000 years old, that's a scientific position, not a theological position, right? What we call the traditional view of the universe. I just want you to understand. I want you to give you breathing room. That as you look at this stuff, I was talking to with a convert who was an oil man, and he said, "How can I believe in the Bible when I'm when I'm drilling its contradiction every day?" And I was like, "What?" And he said, "Come on, fossil fuels, millions of years old. I'm dr- these are the the remains of you know animals and plants and all this stuff." And I was like, "That's not." Okay. Okay. I see what you're doing. You're doing the same thing. The fundamentalist Protestant does the same thing that a fundamentalist atheist like Richard Dawkins does. The Protestant looks at it, demands it to give you 21st century science. It doesn't say evolution. So they throw evolution out. The uh, Richard Dawkins of the world looks at the Bible, sees it doesn't mention evolution or dinosaurs or whatever. And then says, well, this is stupid. And then throws the Bible out instead of throwing science out, right? They're doing the same categorical error. They're expecting blood from a turnip. They're looking at this and saying, why isn't it giving me modern science? It's not a scientific textbook. It's not trying to get that. That doesn't mean it's giving us lesser truths. That's the distinction. It's actually what my whole talk is on tonight for the high school students. There is a difference in type of inquiry between scientific inquiry and philosophical or theological inquiry. That doesn't mean those true, oh, philosophy and theology, those are stupid compared to the natural sciences, right? That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is take a big, deep breath and realize that deep, profound truth Is going to be encountered in these pages. And just because it doesn't align with a 21st century model of the universe does not mean that therefore it's all a bunch of lies, throw it out and kick it to the curb. That is chronological snobbery. And there's no place for that here, good sir. Okay. Back to McDonald's. So I'm talking with the guy and I said, what does in the beginning was the word sound like? It's an allusion, right? An allusion, not an illusion, right? But an allusion. So when Martin Luther King stood on top uh, or at the in Washington D.C., gave his one of his famous speeches. He said, "I have been to the mountaintop. I have seen the promised land." Right? What is that a reference to? It's an allusion to the man named Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. At the end of Numbers, he stands there on the mountaintop and he looks into the promised land. But what did Martin Luther King Jr. just say about himself? One, he believes that his people are going to enter into the promised land, where people will no longer be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. But he also knows he won't live long enough to be there, right? Because Moses never entered the promised land. Moses stood on a mountain, God let him see it, and then Moses died shortly thereafter. He did not take God's people into the promised land. And Martin Luther King's like, this is a multi-generational project. I won't be there, but I can see it. It's on the verge, it's on the horizon, right? And if you had known nothing about Moses, I've been to the mountaintop, I've seen the promised land, that's just like a poetic expression, But using allusions, not illusions, if using allusions, the illusions actually give you whole new depths of meaning. Oh, he's on a mountain and he's looking at a land of promise. What does that mean? But then you're like, oh, he sees himself as like a Moses and and, uh, African-Americans are like a people of Israel, 400 years in slavery. Now we're finding liberty, the civil rights movement, all this stuff. So now you see so many layers of meaning. But if you're ignorant of what they're referencing, you're ignorant of what they're trying to tell us back to McDonald's, I'm saying to this guy, listen, just look at the first three words, in the beginning. You say it to a Jewish person in the first century, especially to a Jewish man trained in scripture, they already have this chapter memorized. So if I were to come up to you and say, in the beginning, you know, a Jewish man anywhere, even if he's illiterate, could say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. They had it memorized. So when he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, he was in the beginning with God. He's giving us some radical new interpretation of Genesis. And the guy looked at me and goes, what do you mean? I said, how does God create? Look at day one, right? And I put it in bold on this piece of paper. Ooh, look at that, Pamela. Um, I put it in bold. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said. So how did God create? God created by the power of his word. So when John writing to a Jewish audience, a Jewish man, using an allusion intentionally to the book of Genesis. Every reader listening to that would say, oh, he's talking about the creation story. In the beginning was the word. What does that mean? Was the word, is is he just using this as like a new term for God? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Mm, What? And the word was God. Mm, Okay, I get the second one, not the first one. He was with him and he was him. That doesn't make sense to me. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, now you're doubling down. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Are you saying that Jesus, this prophet from Nazareth, is this word? What are you talking about? And then you go to Genesis. Genesis. How did God create? 11 times. And then God said, let there be light. And then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And then God said, let the waters be gathered together into one place so the dry land may appear. And then God said, 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 God blessed them, and he said, and on and on and on it goes. So God creates by the power of his word. And John reveals to us that the very word that brought creation into existence, the logos in Greek, the very word is the second person of the Trinity. It is Jesus Christ, who is fully God, but is distinct from God the Father.
1: Hi, I'm Sonia Corbett, the Bible study evangelista and a Baptist turned Catholic. As a Baptist, I thought that Catholic beliefs were invented, that they came out of nowhere and had no connection whatsoever to the Bible. I also happened to believe that the Old Testament was about rules, rituals, and sacrifices that the New Testament gave us permission to ignore for a personal relationship with Jesus. It's a long story, but as God began connecting the Old and New Testaments for me, I was stunned by the beautiful consistency of God in the Catholic Church. I can't tell you how exciting it was when God opened my eyes to the incredible ways the Old Testament foreshadows God's plan for the New Testament and for His Catholic Church. In my book, Fulfilled, Uncovering the Biblical Roots of Catholicism, I explain these amazing connections and I share how those connections helped change my life. If you read this book, I promise that you will come away with tools to help you share your Catholic faith easily, answer questions about how your Catholic faith fits with what's in the Bible. And most importantly, grow deeper in your relationship with Christ. If you're interested in learning more or ordering a copy of Fulfilled, Uncovering the Biblical Roots of Catholicism, you can do so at ascensionpress.com or on Amazon.
0: So, in the Catholic Church, we have this wonderful understanding of the two most foundational doctrines of the Church the Trinity and the In. Incarnation, and every time you see Incarnation, you will think bowl of chili. Or <laughs> So the doctrine of the Incarnation, now we're just going to touch on this right now, but you can open up your Catechism of the Catholic Church, and you bust open part one, and in part one, it'll introduce you to the phrase, the article called, I believe in God the Father, and it'll break down what the church teaches about the Trinity. What do we teach? We believe that God in his innermost mystery is not alone. Christianity is fundamentally distinct from both paganism and the strict monotheism of Islam and Judaism. We believe that in God, there's only one God, one divine nature, but within the Godhead, there is relations. The Father relates to the Son, the Son to the Father, and both to the Holy Spirit. There are what we say three persons and one nature, three persons and one nature, the divine nature, they are all equally, fully, completely God. So in the Nicene Creed we say, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, that's Jesus in the way He relates to the Father. That's the Son's relation to the Father. Begotten, not made. Consubstantial with the Father. Now, what does that mean? So in the early church, there was a huge, people were trying to figure this out. The earliest heresies denied Jesus even had a body. They were called the docetists. He just appeared to look human. So marvelous were his words and deeds. But as time elapses between the actual eyewitnesses of Jesus's words and deeds, a new heresy flips the script. And his name is, the priest was named Arius. the heresy is known as the Arian heresy, has nothing to do with Nazis. Uh, It was known as the Arian heresy. And Arius taught that Jesus was the greatest creature, but not identified with God. So the church did this huge, the first council, the council of Nicaea, the second council, Constantinople, produced this great creed. What is the creed? It is a statement of faith. This is what it means to be a Christian. And they argued and they went through this. Now, what Arius did was he took fishermen songs and he would turn them in, take, took the tune and turned them into Arian heresies and they spread like wildfire throughout the Mediterranean world, right? Uh, one day I was talking to the Christian music uh, artist and he was like, eh, it doesn't really matter. It's just a song. Who cares if it's not 100% theologically accurate? And I was like, you Arian heretic. And we arm wrestled. It was fine. I lost, but not spiritually. Um, so the idea of this, this doctrine is the bedrock foundational doctrine. Now, story time with me. I did not want to be Catholic when I was in high school. I wanted to be anything but Catholic because my parents were Catholic and they were super devout and they were in charge of like 90% of the stuff at our church. And I did not want to do that, right? So I wouldn't pray the creed, dang it, because I'm an angsty teenager. I'd still receive communion because I didn't want to get lectured by my mom, but I wouldn't pray the creed, right? So here's the, as this kind of unfolds, right? I realize, well, you have Islam. What is Islam? Islam is like Christianity. It's old. It's all this stuff, but it's a lot simpler. Instead of the Trinity of father, son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, but not gods. That hurts my brain. So let's just worship Allah, which is an Arabic generic term for God. It just like in Latin Deus, right? Like it's just the generic term. Allah is alone. Allah is almighty. Allah is sovereign. Allah is just one dude. What about Jesus? Jesus in the incarnation has a full divine nature, divine intellect, divine will, and he takes on a full human nature, including a human intellect and a human will as well as a body. He didn't just take his divine intellect and pour it into, uh, you know, some like a prefabricated human body. He took on a full human nature. Why? Because you and I sin with our wills. We sin with our intellects. So he took on a human intellect and a human will. He was fully human and fully divine. What is the prophet Muhammad? He's just a guy. He's just blessed with a prophecy. That's the difference. So is this Jesus's? Is this two natures, one person, three persons, one nature? Very confusing. Islam simplifies it all. So I struggle with this mightily. I began reading the Quran and all this stuff as as an angsty 16-year-old, right? Began reading through this stuff. And this is what actually brought me into Christianity in a pretty hardcore way which was simply this. If God in his divine nature is alone, then what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. What is love, okay? <laughs> love, I mean, just think about love. For love to be real, you need at least one other person or a thing, an object of your love. So this is how I reasoned about the Trinity, right? right. It's not irrational. It's super rational. We talked about this. When you think about the Trinity, you think of Father and Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, which bonds Father and Son together. When you think about love, what is love? Right? Love needs an object. Everything that is God, right? In, in Islam, they have the 99 attributes of God. Everything that we have that can be labeled good is found infinitely perfect in God. Right? That makes sense. Right? If there's a good thing on earth, it's infinitely found in God. Right? So if God is, if we have justice, God is infinitely just. If we have love, God is infinite love. Right? All that stuff. So here's the deal. I began thinking, well, what about those virtues that we human beings say are good? How can they be perfected in God if God is alone? Like before creation, before Allah snapped his fingers and all things came to be, before any of that stuff, God in himself can't be love because he has no object of love. He can't be justice because he has no one towards whom to be just to. So I began on the struggle bus with this line, and this was the line of thought for me, For love to be real, it needs a subject and an object and the verb of love that connects them, right? Everyone loves grammar. You need a subject and an object, okay? In the Trinity, we have the eternal Father who eternally loves the eternal Son, right? Jesus reveals that God is not like a Father. That's the Old Testament, 16 times-ish. It's a simile, it's a metaphor, right? But Jesus reveals God is my Father. God is the Father. He teaches us to pray our Father. Why does that matter? Because Jesus reveals that he's eternally the Father, He's not eternally fathering Israel, this people that he created at a certain place in time. He's eternally fathering the eternal son. Father is not just what he is, it's what he does as well. He is the father who fathers, and he's eternally fathering the son. And so when you begin to see that, you see that within God there is relation, there is a dynamism. Within God himself, from all eternity, apart from all creation, God the Father loves God the Son. And God the Son receives that. He doesn't take it. He receives that gift of love from all eternity. So from all eternity, the Father is fathering, the Son is being fathered, and the Son returns his love to the Father. And that reciprocal love is so intense, so infinite, so eternal, it is the Holy Spirit, the verb that bonds the subject to the object right? So my wife goes and does a retreat at a certain all-girls Catholic school, and the nun in charge says, let us pray in the name of the creator, redeemer, and sanctifier. And my wife was like, "Now I know God is the creator, redeemer, and sanctifier, but all that came out really weird to me. And she, we were talking at Outback Steakhouse, and uh, over a delicious uh, uh, shrimp on the barbie or something, or, or the blooming onion, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> so we're talking, and she says, why was that so weird? And I said, well, number one, it divides the Trinity, God the Father, oh, he's the one who creates. But wait, John chapter 1 says that the word, all creation created, right? All creation came through him. So you can't just say like, oh, the Father's the creator, the Son is the redeemer, and the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier, the one who makes you holy. And I said, but it does something even uglier than that. And she said, what? And I said, it takes the whole point of religion, which is my, religion actually is is a virtue, which means the justice I render unto God, meaning his worship and homage, that's his due. Right? So before we think of it as an institution, it's first a a virtue. But it inverts religion. It says, God, you have no identity except in relationship to me. Think about that. You don't have a name. I mean, even though Jesus revealed you are Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they use the masculine, okay. Like I can understand being gender inclusive, but in this context, Jesus directly chose to call himself the Son and God the Father. So why does that matter? It matters because that's who they are in and of themselves completely separate from creation. The father is a fathering. The son is being begotten from all eternity. Begotten, but not made, right? So what does that mean in this in the story, right? Is this nun trying to be gender inclusive, which is good when you can do it respectfully, is bad when it distorts the doctrines at its heart. You have no existence in and of yourself except in relation to me as my creator, as the one who redeemed me, as the one who sanctified me. But when you use the biblical language that Christ himself revealed, we maintain that in and of himself, even apart from creation, God was perfectly complete and sufficient in himself. He didn't need us. Okay, listen to the words of that, right? God does not need you or me. And that is good news. I need you. We need each other. Have you ever farmed? I don't know how to farm my own food. I've never butchered a cow. I shot an armadillo once practically threw up, I emptied an entire clip from a a Beretta, trying to kill it. I missed almost every single shot, and I was like 10 feet away from him. It was scary. It was very dark out. Uh, (laughs) I'm terrible. If if there wasn't white-collar knowledge work jobs, I'm dead. You know why? I need farmers. I need butchers. I need those people to exist in the world to get that delicious meat into my body. Now, that's important because that means we're interdependent. But there's a danger. When sin enters the world of interdependence, what happens? I can use you. I can twist you. I can twist our relationship. I can treat the person at the checkout counter at the grocery store like they're just a cog in a machine, not a human person. Right? And I, compl- and I know this because I used to be a checker at a grocery store, right? And I used to be a bagger, all that stuff, right? And so you know what it's like when someone uses you. But they use you because they need you. Because they're limited finite creatures and you're a limited finite creature. And all together, we can actually, that's why no man is an island. We need one another. But what if there was a being who doesn't need one another yet still chooses to be in relation to me, right? God doesn't need you for his own happiness. That's ultimately the doctrine of the Trinity as it applies to us, is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are infinitely perfectly happy in and of themselves. Then why create? Because love loves to be diffused. Love is always creative. So when God created the universe, he didn't do it because he was bored and lonely. He did it because that's what love does and he freely chose to create. But because God is not alone in and of himself, all those virtues and goods that only come from human community are first found in the divine community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So I'm looking at that guy across the table from me, across the booth, and I said, so you see the doctrine of the Trinity Right, protects one, our theology of who God is. Because if you take away the Trinity, then God needs creatures in order to have certain perfections, like justice and like love. But if God, then what was God? That means that God himself is incomplete without those creatures. And I don't think anyone would give a creature or a being that's incomplete the title God. If anything, we all agree that God is perfect, infinite perfection, infinite completion. And he's like, okay. I said, so if, actually he said with an accent of Mississippi River captive, but the idea connecting that was, so if God has this dynamism within himself, he creates from within that dynamism, in his image after his likeness, what is the first time in the book of Genesis, it declares something that's not good. Because over and over again, it is good, 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 behold, it is very good. The next time the phrase, it is good, modifies, is modified with the word not, is when it says it is not good for the man to be alone, right? It is not good in a world of objects to have a subject, a person with his own interior life, this Adam creature who now is in the garden, he has the animals, it's not good for him to be alone. Why? Because he's made in the image and likeness of a God who is not alone. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit created the world, right? Created all creation. They don't need creation, but they willed it out of a perfect, sovereign act of freedom. They chose it. They didn't need it. And that means that your act of creation is a pure gift, pure gratuitousness. What's the opposite of realizing, or what's the consequence of realizing that even creation is a gift? Gratitude. What's the opposite of gratitude? Entitlement. Why? Entitlement means you owe me. But gratitude means I can't believe you did this for me. So how does God relate? Well, when we sinned, when we rebelled, when we walked away in Adam, when we turned our backs to an infinite, all good and all perfect loving God, what did God do? In the very moment of the fall, which we'll get to do in a later class, in the very moment of the fall, God promised redemption. But it wasn't just redemption with a great king. It wasn't just redemption with a great political liberation. Ultimately, God himself would enter into the world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What did he do? He gave that's what love does. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. Why did God send the son for salvation? To get people back on board, to bring them home. And when you look at it from this big perspective, you, you end up looking at the Trinity and you realize, but that's who God is. He's self-giving love from all eternity. So when God enters in the world, what does he do? He manifests this self giving love. So what does he say? Look at Deuteronomy 5, 6, 5. Look at Matthew 22. It's the same thing. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What do we do? We classify ever smaller and ever smaller those who fit in, and we expand ever wider and ever wider those who are on the outside looking in. And the God of the universe came to his own people, and he entered in to the fullness of what it means to be on the outside to be excluded, to be rejected, to be marginalized, to be oppressed, to be forgotten, to be despised, to be hated. He entered into the worst that we human beings do, namely sin, self-alienation, self-exile. And he took all of that upon himself, what the Bible just simply calls the curse. He takes it all upon himself to annihilate it so that you can fit in, so that you can belong, so that you can have a place, so that he can lay down his life for the sake of his beloved. No one loves anyone more than he who lays down his life for his friends, right? So Jesus' entire mission becomes reinterpreted through the lens of the Trinity, right? If this is who God is, then of course this is what God does, right? And this is how God continues to manifest. Now, we human beings love to throw up sin and selfishness and darkness and separation, and we even use the gospel sometimes to do it. But what God is trying to do for us is to break down those exact walls.